Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast War Stories. All right, folks, so the world has gone crazy. If you haven't noticed, the world has gone mad. So what we're going to do here today is we're going to read war stories to take our minds off the madness that is going on, and we're going to take a step back into a different time, a different place, not a simpler time, just a different time. Um, If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Please hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Same thing if you've been watching for a while, but you haven't hit that subscribe button yet. Go ahead and hit that um, so that you don't miss any updates and new podcasts when they come out. So if you've been watching over the last couple of podcasts, I've been covering uh, a book called About Face, and I was doing a, a section of that book titled Hill 400 by Colonel... David H. Hackworth wrote the book, and it's basically about his experiences in Korea and Vietnam. So where we left off was they captured the hill, 400. Hackworth got severely wounded. He was taken to a hospital in Sweden where he was going to heal and recover. So after he recovers, they tell him, okay, uh, it's time for you to go back to the States. Your time in combat here in Korea is over. So on his way to go back to the States, they ended up sending him to Japan, where he waits to go back to the States. He's facing a whole different type of challenges now. What we didn't cover before, um, Hackworth had received a battlefield commission, meaning that he became an officer on the battlefield. He went from being a sergeant to now a lieutenant in the army. So now... He's going back to the States, which means he's going to be in the garrison role. Garrison means basically not being in the field, not being in a combat situation, uh, being back home, stateside, office-style stuff, right? That's called garrison. Now, Hackworth, as we're going to read, this guy is not a guy who went to school. He didn't... I don't think he finished high school. Uh, He's probably lucky if he got his GED. He goes into the army. He could command troops really well, and they made him an officer on the battlefield. That doesn't happen really too much nowadays. Um, To become an officer back then and even now, you had to go to college. You had to have a degree. You had to go through officer candidate school. There are exceptions where you get a battlefield commission. That was uncommon, but more common than it is today. Back in World War I, World War II, Korea... You don't really see that today. I'm not positive, but I'm going to have to look into it to see if there were any battlefield commissions uh, within the last 20 years. Um, I It's going to be very rare. If it did happen, maybe it happened once. I doubt it even happened, though. But I'll have to look into that, and I'll get back to you guys on that. All right. So Hackworth, while he's in Japan, waiting to transition and go back to the States, he quickly realizes that He's at a disadvantage compared to the other officers because of his educational background. Um, And he's got to figure out how he's going to enter this competitive officer world back in the States and compete, right? So while he's in Japan, he meets this girl named Katie. She works for the Red Cross, dark hair, blue eyes, falls madly in love with her. She's pretty well-connected around the place. So she tries to get Hackworth's duty station changed to stay in Japan. It didn't work out. 
So Hackworth has got to go back. Their last night together, <clears throat> they go out for dinner, dancing <clears throat> at this restaurant slash bar slash club. And they all have to wear their uniform. It was mandatory. They had to wear the uniform. So there's a bunch of army guys there, a bunch of Navy guys. And Hackworth and his girlfriend, Katie, are eating dinner together at a table. And one of Katie's exes shows up. He's in the Navy. So he starts coming over, trying to talk to Katie. She tells him, you know, basically to get lost. So then he starts to become a problem and starts uh, trying to push Hackworth's buttons, right? So they decided to leave. They're going to get out of there. And as they're leaving, this guy's getting in between Hackworth, Katie, and the, and the door. It's not really, he's, he's, he's trying to start something. So Hackworth pretty much knocks him out. And then a big brawl starts between the army guys and the navy guys. So him and Katie, they slide out one of the back doors to go downstairs to get outside. And then they're, you know, spend the rest of their night together. They're trying to make plans of how they're going to continue their relationship. So Hackworth gets next day, packs up, gets on the boat. Katie's there, says goodbye. It's very uh, movie-like. The boat's starting to go away from the port and they're waving and they're watching each other until they can't see each other anymore. And then Hackworth writes in there that that was the last time he ever saw her. So he never sees Katie again after that. It's kind of sad. So then, so he makes his way back to uh, the States. He's in California. He's coming up to the Golden Gate Bridge. And he says, wow, this is a pretty beautiful bridge. And I've seen this before uh, back when he tells a story. And this is where we're going to pick up. So now, uh, if you think that, how many of you think that kids today grow up too fast? A pretty well-known sentiment today. Like you hear, oh, kids, they grow up too fast. They have too much on their plate. They don't really get to be kids, right? Um, so that's pretty much widely believed that kids today grow up too fast. Well, I'm gonna tell you that you're wrong. Kids back in Hackworth's day, they grew up too fast. And we're going to read a story about Hackworth from when he was 14 and what this guy did at the age of 14. He did more at the age of 14 than most people do in their whole entire life. All right. So we're going to get into that. Oh, background story. So Hackworth, when he grew up, uh, he was basically going through foster families, going through one foster family to the next. He either got to a family, didn't like it, ran away. Uh, even if he found a family he did like, he did something. He was kind of a bad kid. He did something and, uh, you know, he messed that up. So he ran away a lot and he ran away from his last foster family that he was with. And we're in, that's where we're, we're going to start off. So he puts this story in the middle of another story. So I'm reading this first. I'm kind of going back and forth. All right. So I'm going to start here. It says, I've been waiting at the gas station for another ride when a Dodge station wagon pulled up, a 1942 model in mint condition. It was a most incredible sight in 1945. The Dodge was probably one of the last cars off the line before they stopped making them in 42 as part of the war effort. While the attendant was busy filling it up, I moseyed on over to the driver and tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, mister, you going to LA? I asked. The guy turned and my heart skipped a beat. He was a cop in plain clothes. Yes, I am, boy. Hop in. It had been too late to run away. And in the desert, 
of Southern California. There wasn't too many places to run away anyway. So I got in the car, looking around for radios or whatever else the cop kept in their vehicles. I didn't see anything, but I still expected the guy to put me under arrest any second. The scariest part was that I was convinced he knew me and was just biding his time. I knew him. I'd recognize his face. We headed toward LA. When we stopped for lunch, it became pretty apparent that I didn't have 10 cents in my pocket. So he bought me a sandwich and a Coke. We started to talk. He really was a nice guy. And suddenly I realized that he wasn't a cop, but the guy who always played the cop or the priest in the movies straight from one of my favorite war films, The Fighting 69th. It was Pat O'Brien and one of the great thrills of my life. So Hackworth is trying to hitchhike back to LA. And so he sees this guy and he taps him on the shoulder. He thinks he's a cop. He recognizes the guy's face. He's like, I've seen this guy before. This guy's a cop. The guy says, yeah, you know, get in the car. They start driving. Hackworth realizes that's not a cop. This is an actor, Pat O'Brien. So he just gets picked up by Pat O'Brien for hitchhiking, right? All right. So he goes, I told him I was going to my grandmother's in Ocean Park, but not much more. I couldn't see Pat O'Brien wanting to be a real life accessory to my escape. And when we hit LA... He insisted on driving me home. I hadn't counted on that. The fact was, I couldn't go home because Graham would haul me right back to the judge if I stepped on her door. He started asking me about my address. When I got to Santa Monica, I suggested he just drop me off right there. You said you lived in Ocean Park, he said. How are you going to get home? I told him I'd take the bus. I thought you have no money. I'll walk. He stopped the car and put his hand on my shoulder. How old are you? 14, sir. Let me tell you something, kid. I know you're on the lam, and you don't have any money, and every time a police car has gone by all day, you almost slid under the seat. I started to explain, but he stopped me. He reached into his pocket, he reached into his wallet, and pulled out a bill. I sat there, thinking that Pat O'Brien was going to give me a dollar, and the bus only cost a nickel. He handed me a 20. Keep it, kid. You'll need it, he said. So Pat O'Brien gives his kid 20 bucks. 20 bucks is going to go a long way for him back in the day. You know, this is in uh, 1940 something, and um, you know, a dollar went a long way. Let alone this kid gets twenty dollars. The bus took a nickel, right? It's five cents. So let's see what he does. He goes. So I'd gone right over to Al Hewitt's, but his mother knew I was hot, so she wouldn't let me stay. With my newly acquired twenty bucks, I checked into a boarding house for a week, which left me four dollars and seven cents to decide my future. So he goes, he's 14 years old and he goes and gets a boarding house for a week at 14. Like that would not happen today. A 14 year old shows up at a boarding house uh, or anywhere and they're going to be like, no, dude, like where's your, where's your adult? Where's your guardian? So this is a different time, right? So it goes with my newly acquired 20 bucks. I checked into a boarding house for a week which left me $4.07 to decide my future. It had been Al's idea to join the Merchant Marine. He told me a schoolmate, Kenny Carpenter, had just come back from somewhere out of the Pacific, and he was a big war hero, had lots of money, and all the girls in town were throwing themselves at him. I like the sound of that. And if Kenny's reputation on the home front weren't compelling enough reason, about the same time my brother Roy, who was 17, joined the Navy... And my cousins, John and Donald Hackworth, had come home more heroes from the South Pacific. So the Merchant Marine, it would be. Except the problem was my age. Al 
had been all right. He was a couple of years older, but I needed to be 16. And even then, because I was still a minor, the permission of my father. It had been a tall order. It had been a tall order for a kid to age two years overnight and resurrect a father who had been dead for 13. Still, where there's a will, there's a way. We went down to the beach and found a suitably aged wino to whom we gave a dollar with the promise of another to come with us to a notary, call himself my father and get permission for a son born November 11th, 1928 to join the Merchant Marine. Within a few hours, the wino had a windfill and Al and I were at San Pedro joining the Seamen's Union and assigned berths on a ship that was leaving at noon the following day. I stowed my gear and stayed on board while Al went home to say goodbye to his parents. The next morning, no sign of Al. At 12 o'clock, just as we were pulling away, I saw him running down the dock. We're going to leave without you, Al. Hurry up, I called from the deck. I can't go, he yelled back. Why not? My mother won't let me. So long, Al. So the name of the merchant ship was the SS Marine Lynx. Its role was to shuttle personnel and supplies between Guam, Saipan, Antinian. My job had been that of an apprentice seaman. Eight-hour days shifting ballast and chipping, priming, and painting anything on board that didn't move. I had no area of responsibility. That ship didn't depend on me in any way. So I had plenty of time to look around. And by the time we got back to the island, I pretty well understood how things worked. If I took care of the cook with an extra can of paint when he needed it, He'd take care of me with a huge sandwich and other goodies as requested day or night. A perfect arrangement given a kid at 14 whose bottomless pit for a stomach. I'd also figured out that because the Marine Lynx was such a huge ship, a C4 class, it would be enough for a guy to disappear himself for a day or two at a time. So whenever we were in a small port like Guam, I'd go AWOL at first sight. I wrap my clothes in plastic bag and throw them over to the ocean. Then I dive in, swim a mile to the shore, get dressed, and find myself a marine outfit to tag along on patrol. So, like, this is no joke. This guy will go AWOL from the ship. He's jumping out. He gets ashore, and he would find himself a marine outfit, like a U.S. marine outfit. And he would tag along with the marines on patrol at 14. This is insane. It's really bizarre, actually. I would stay with them for the rest of the day, crawling through knocked out Japanese tanks and bunkers and picking up rusted weapons and other souvenirs in the jungle. On more than one occasion, I found myself hugging the ground, too. It was late 1945, and the Japanese that were left on Guam were fanatically refusing to accept that the war was over, and they were determined to fight it out on their own. When the patrols came in at night, I catch a landing craft infantry back to the ship. No one ever checked up. You needed permission to go ashore, but not to come back on board. But the best nights were the couple when I missed the LCI. I had little choice but to follow the Marines back into their villages and spend the night with them. Listening to war stories and watching them get drunk, some of the Marine guys kind of adopted me as had members of the Army's regiment that was billeted in Ocean Park when I was a kid. It was really a dream come true. Although I'd been eager Army mascot at home, a complete with a little uniform, World War I campaign hat with a blue braid and 
starving to learn anything the GIs would teach me. Secretly, I'd always wanted to be a Marine. One reason was that Graham had wasted my birthday was 10 November, Marine Day, which is the Marine Corps' birthday. I guess they called it Marine Day back in the day. Now it's known as the Marine Corps' birthday. And the other was there were lots of Marines in Santa Monica during the war, and they had the snazziest uniforms and the shiniest shoes of all the services. And I know shoes because I made a small fortune shining them for Army guys up the road. All in all, the Merchant Marine tour had been just a great, great adventure, which ended only when I cut my foot badly on some coral during one of my forays. And the wound became infected, and I was sent home by a hospital ship in March 1946. To my great surprise, the welcome our vessel received in San Francisco, seven months after the war had ended, was probably an as enthusiastic as is on VJ Day itself. Banners and signs dotted the shoreline, thanking us and proclaiming a job well done. Boats with the bands jammed the harbor and the spilling across the horizon were what seemed like millions of beautiful waving girls. It was a great warrior's homecoming. And amidst all the excitement, I was transferred to the Marine Hospital where I spent three weeks recovering from my wound. And if anyone asks how I got it and didn't ask too quickly, I tell them a little story about how the Japs on Guam. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Hackworth is a character, man. This guy. For, so, first of all, he tried getting into World War Two, at like 13 or 14, and it didn't happen. Just like Anthony Herbert, if you haven't watched the podcast I did on Anthony Herbert, Conquests of Nowhere. I have a playlist on that. Uh, check that out. It's very similar to Hackworth's story. They both received combat uh, battlefield commissions. They both tried getting into World War II when they were teenagers. It didn't work out. Actually, um, Anthony Herbert actually had forged documents from his doctor saying that he was of age and you know he was good to go. And he actually joined and they were on the bus he he joined the Marines. And he was on the bus on the way to Paris Island. Somehow, his principal caught wind of it, got in touch with the FBI. The FBI stops the bus, takes him off, and sends him back to his high school principal. Um, so both of them end up missing World War II, which they're pretty upset about. And then when Korea came along, they said, this is my chance to go to war. Uh, nothing's going to stop me from going to Korea, right? So they're actually pretty similar uh, stories. I would definitely go check out Anthony Herbert, um, the podcast that I did. There's two or three of them. Uh, it's called Conquest Nowhere. Hackworth is in the same situation. He's trying to get, he wants to go to war. He's trying to get to where at 13 or 14, misses that, doesn't make it. He joins the Merchant Marines at age 14. He had some drunk pretend to be his father back in the 40s. There was no record keeping. And, you know, like they didn't even, he didn't really know when his real birthday was, right? He said, as my grandma always said, my birthday was 10 November. And then he had the, the drunk that pretended to be his dad say his, he was born on the 11th of November, right? So there's no real record keeping like they keep now. You can't get away with that stuff today. But so he, then he goes, on the ship and at 14 he's going overboard and swimming ashore and hooks up with marine infantry units and he goes on patrols with them <laughs> this is crazy and then if he misses one of the ships back to to his ship 
Then he's got to stay with the Marines, go into the villages. And there's sometimes they're getting into skirmishes with Japanese that are still on the island that aren't accepting that the war is over. And this kid is 14 years old. This is insane. So anybody who tells you that kids today grow up too fast, I would seriously say we, we need to reassess that and start looking at what our grandparents' lives were like when they were growing up during the World War II, after World War II, prior to World War II, and the type of stuff that they would do. And it wasn't uncommon for kids not to graduate high school or to quit school in their 14s and 15s and start working a full-time job 40 hours or more a week to help support the family. It wasn't uncommon back then. Now that doesn't happen. You're lucky if you could get a kid to work 20 hours a week. So it's pretty interesting. So the next, I wanted to read that. I wanted to get that story out there. Um, the next podcast I do is going to pick up when Hackworth goes back into Garrison, back on the stateside after leaving Korea. And we'll get back into that next time. But that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Hit in the comments. Also, write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever it is that you're listening to this. Uh, write me a review. Give me that five-star rating. And I'll see you next time. This is Flip the Script Podcast out.